but with boarding schools, what in your research, how has that impacted, um, I guess, children then and even us as survivors of the boarding school atrocities? Good morning, Native America. Young and Indigenous here. My name is Isabella James, and I'm here with Connor. Take it, Bay. All right, I'm Bay. <laughs> Just kidding. My name's Michelle Pulaski, and I'm from the Lummi Nation. Yay Podcast stands for Young and Indigenous, and that's who we are. We are doing this for our community members. We are trying to build bridges by bringing people together to share their concerns, stories, love, ideas, and more. But it is also for those people who are outside of our community who would like to learn more about us as Indigenous people from our podcast episodes. the Young and Indigenous Podcast, Episode 10. I want to welcome our guests, Sue Ann Riddick and Fred Lane. I did this interview back in December for a school project. You get to hear some of Sue Ann's research she has been doing on residential schools. My project was on how our language was affected during this time. When you see Indigenous people, think about the culture that colonials wanted to wipe out. In the early days, when children were brought from their reservations, they were forced to speak only English. There were a couple of reasons for this. The objective was not so much to eliminate one single language, but rather to create a means by which the they could be controlled and they could communicate with one another as well as with the teachers and so forth. Uh, nowadays, we actually have what they call um, immersion teaching. If you've ever learned another language, it's 
it's good to know because there are parallels there and immersion is essentially what they force these young children into. The, the problem as we look at it today is that very young children form much of their, their sense of self and their understanding of community and culture when they are the age of many of the kids that were brought to the schools early on. So they lost that. They lost the ability to speak their language and to communicate and to connect with the, their families and their tribes. So there was, a, there was a destructive component that outweighed the benefit of being able to speak another language. Does that, does that kind of give you a sense of, um, of what, what happened in terms of the, uh, in terms of the, the language itself? They were, um, they were punished as most people understand for speaking their own language. They also were in a very difficult position oftentimes if you, for example, if you had one child who was from the Lummi Reservation and kids who were from the Skokomish and kids that were Puyallup and kids that were from uh, Siletz, uh or California, you go on, you've got this big group of children. And as with any other situation where you have minorities, essentially children that one or two or three of them can be kind of ostracized. So there had to have been as well in the early years, as well as the problems that came from the experience of the children being taken away from their families, taken away from their, their tribes. There was also the experience of being thrown into groups of children who didn't even speak their language either. They may have been their same age, but as Freddie was pointing out earlier, that there was a huge diversity in culture. Even, um, even in more recent years, there is still a great uh, in particularly, and I'm going to point this out, there's a big difference between the off-reservation boarding schools and the experience the kids had there. And the ones that predominantly brought children from essentially the same communities. So if you had an on-reservation boarding school, you may have had many similar experiences, but the kids were far better able to communicate with one another. And there's not a whole lot of exploration about this, but I think you can kind of imagine what it would be like to be a kid from Olami, for example, and you go to school and the majority of the kids in your class are Navajo. It's a completely different world, a completely different environment. And when neither one of you speak a common language, it creates an even more complicated uh, situation for you to have to deal with just, just in basic communications. In time, I think that the most um, positive uh, consequence of, of this experience that was horrible in so many ways, but we would not have had what we'll call the Pan-Indian movement. The, the sense of unity that the tribes all over the United 
states and Alaska and even Hawaii have developed over the past half century or thereabouts. That movement and that sense of identity of indigenous people collectively seeing one another in the same realm was to a very large degree created accidentally. I think that's perhaps the most interesting thing. It was never intentional on the part of the federal government that such a thing should happen. They were making it for their own reasons, for practical reasons. But the outcome was that by the 1960s, to pick a number out of the hat, there was a much stronger collective identity. The word Indian meant more as a way of identifying people together than it had in the 1800s. The only thing the kids would have understood is where they came from, what their individual tribe was. But this concept of Indian was a white concept. It was a federal concept. It was a government framework, the Indian agencies and so forth. But it never had a truly, in the early days, it did not have a really legitimate connection to the way in which people identify themselves. So the unique and remarkable and impressive consequence, I think, of the off-reservation boarding schools where so many kids from different tribes were brought together was that there was a strength and a unity because of the resilience of Native people that was created much to, I think, the unhappiness of the federal government because the government never chose that in the place. They thought everybody would just simply become like white guys and that would be it. If I were to put myself back in this time, I can't imagine going through these things. Just hearing of what some of the things she says breaks my heart. I can't imagine being taken as a child and I can imagine my child being taken for me. I'm sure a lot of us died trying to protect our children. We got killed for doing what was right. I can resonate with some of the things that she says. Like saying, putting myself and imagining myself in some of those situations. Some of the things that children in residential schools went through. They wanted to wipe us out of our identity and our culture. But right now, can you imagine children being taken from our homes, from our, from our schools, from everything around us, and being mistreated the way that these children have been? In today's world, this would be wrong for any person to be doing to children at all. All of the crap that they went through. We would be lost of all of this. They wanted us to be lost into their world.
in your research of the kids buried at Chimawa, uh, Suan, what, you know, with the children that were buried there in the late 1800s and when we, we met uh, just this past uh, early October, I, I, I couldn't help but feel what those children might have felt. And uh, I just kind of want to, in your research of uh, the culture, we were talking about the impacts of boarding schools on the culture. And you, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, like we're all going to be these good little white people. But, you know, they, they wiped out so many indigenous cultures uh, throughout the world. Uh, and, 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 but with boarding schools, what, what, in your research, how has that impacted, um, um, I guess children then, and even us as survivors of the boarding school atrocities? I think back as you talk about the, the children who were buried at Chmawa, and of course we have had the, um, the experience since we published the website of having some families get in touch with us and that has been both wonderful and and sad uh, because even though these were typically not uh, ancestor direct ancestors they were the the aunties and uncles of the people who have survived or the parents of the people who survived today. And I think there is one interesting component here that uh, comes back time and time again. When I speak of aunties and uncles, and I have on many occasion, heroes and the models. Um, and oftentimes I, I will um, remember that the graduates from Chamawa many of the Alaskans in particular were wonderful contributors. Um, there are tribal leaders, there are government leaders. There are many people who have graduated from Chmawa who have been very, very productive in, in their tribes, in their villages, in their families, in their government, in our country, in the world. So there have been some some good things that have come out of that, but it does make you realize the children who didn't make it, the children who were taken away, the children who died, uh, were that the the tribe was undermined by having that an incredibly valuable resource taken away. When I go back and I think about these things and think about the things that happened, I don't want to bring up negative thoughts about these things of what happened to us. Because yes, it did happen to us. And it was wrong. I don't want to bring those bad memories back up. I just want to acknowledge that you are still here today. We as indigenous people, I want to acknowledge that we are still here, strong and alive. They didn't wipe us out. They didn't take us away. They didn't take us away. 
the culture colonials wanted to wipe out is breathing strong today still. I myself is living proof of those times. I am using my voice to raise awareness for the 150,000 children that didn't have a choice but to listen so that we could survive during these days. I myself will under, never understand why we were treated the way we was, but I will continue to use my voice and tell our stories and work for the good for our people because our people have struggled from colonization for way too long. And we as native people only want to bring good feelings of the work that we do today. So condolences out to the indigenous children that were found. My hands go up to the 215 children that were found and the continued churches and schools that are being searched for continued children to be found. Again, I don't want to bring continued hurt up, but that we are still here. Like what my boss says, that we come from a culture where we give and we don't expect anything in return. We are giving people, and we will continue to. Again, my heart goes out to these children, my relatives. We are strong as indigenous people. We will always fight for what is right. We take a little and we give back. We stand for our people, we stand for what was almost wiped out. You make sure you stand up for for that. Be proud and stand strong. I am proud to be here today as my grandparents and great-grandparents went through some of these things and that I am living proof and the voice that we are still here. Young and Indigenous Podcast is part of Children of the Setting Sun Productions. Young and Indigenous is produced by Isabella James, Michelle Pulaski, Santana Bang, and Ellie Smith. Music by Mark Nichols, Young and Indigenous Team, theme song by Keith Jefferson and Adam Lawrence. One chance. We would like to thank our partners, First Nations Development Institute, Satterberg Foundation, Novo Foundation, North Sound ACH, Discurrent Foundation, and the Lummi Nation. Branding done by Bo Garrow. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or on childrenofthesettingsunproductions.org. Until next time, Lay Nooks and Saw. See you later.